Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. So welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another Pain Talk podcast. And today we're going to really dig into acute pain. So pain is one of the most common reasons that patients come to see us in healthcare. In fact, it's probably the most common reason patients come to the emergency room. So when I see patients who are experiencing pain and I talk with them about the pain, I try to help them frame the pain in a healthy context. But we also don't want to try and minimize their pain experience. So we need to recognize that what they feel is unique to them regardless of the trigger or mechanism. So acknowledging that we experience pain and suffering differently is really important. So my job is to make sure that there's nothing dangerous or bad that's happening in their tissue. And if there is something needing attention, I need to get them the help that is required. My job is also to provide them with the tools to help them understand and manage their pain experiencing, so that they're experiencing. So these tools could be medication-based, they could be specific interventions, or even alternative therapies. We're seeing more and more literature that's bringing in therapies such as acupuncture into the emergency room. But a great example of a tool that can make a big difference is an elderly patient that comes to the emergency room with a compression fracture. Oftentimes a back brace that is not a, it's a soft brace that we can apply to that back can make a world of difference to their pain experience and may help minimize the amount of pharmacology that they're going to require. And as we know, the elderly tend to be very sensitive to many of the medications that we use to manage pain. And often they do extremely well with some even basic strategies like some Tylenol on a regular basis. But back braces can be very, very helpful in this population. So if we think about an overall approach to acute pain, the important thing is to listen to that pain story to acknowledge suffering and to examine them carefully for any new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. And then we want to start to look at the tools we can use to help manage their pain. However, one of the important things that I bring into this discussion as well is how I frame pain and the role pain has in terms of helping them understand that it is an alarm system that also tries to protect the tissue. So I try to frame pain in a healthy context, and we're going to kind of dive into that as we go along here. It's very important. So pain has purpose, especially in the acute pain. It gets a little bit complicated with the chronic pain, but generally acute pain has purpose. It is there to tell us when something is wrong, but it's there also to tell us when our tissue needs protection until it heals. My job is not to take away their pain. Rather, it is to help them move better and sleep better. The more sedated I make them, the more inactive I make them, the more likely I will make their pain experience much worse. So the goals and targets in pain reduction will change depending on the type of pain I'm managing, but also uh, how I communicate that to the patient. So with acute pain, as was mentioned in a previous podcast, is we're trying to get that 80% pain reduction, but I need to minimize sedation and I want to improve function. So my job is really to help the patient move better, but also help them to sleep better at nighttime. So acute pain is more tissue-based, gets triggered by an injury, illness, surgery, unknown trigger. The pain system tells us when something's wrong. It protects that tissue, and then pain intensity decreases, and usually it's back to zero on 10 within three months. So this is more about tissue damage or potential damage. It has the acute warning function of physiological nociception, usually gone within three months. So 
when we have the conversation around acute pain uh, and the patient is open to the conversation, I start the conversation usually by telling them that we all have a pain system, just like we have a cardiovascular system, just like we have a respiratory system. And the main role of that pain system is to keep you alive. So survival is the main purpose of that pain system besides protection. So it gets triggered by the injury, illness, surgery, or unknown trigger. The mechanism for the pain alarm is deep in the limbic system, so deep around that brain stem. That limbic system has two major functions. One is to keep us alive. The other one is to seek pleasure. So the part that keeps us alive is what's triggered. So, uh, And it's usually about six different structures that are in there that we're not going to get into right now in this podcast. But it's a really primitive area. It's a very irrational area, but it is essential for survival. So when that pain gets triggered, it acts like an alarm. And the best way to think of the analogy is when somebody breaks into your house, the alarm goes off, everything stops, it says, pay attention, there's something going on here. So immediately our body goes into protection mode. And there's usually three different things that start to happen. One is that we start to see some changes in the cellular neurobiology. But the other thing that we can often see is that we get a response in the muscle tissue. So the muscles are going to try and protect that area. They're going to get tight. Sometimes they can go into spasm. But don't be surprised if your patient describes a pain experience, because remember, pain is very subjective. And the intensity of that pain experience can be so significant feels so life-threatening to that patient that they actually start to feel some weakness. And sometimes what happens is that patient feels like their legs are going to give out from underneath them. Now, of course, it's really important to examine them to make sure there's nothing else going on. But that weak feeling, that feeling that they're going to go down because of the intensity of pain, is something that can actually happen. And this is what I call sometimes the play dead mode. This is where they feel their body is going to go down. Um, So it can happen in some patients. The other thing that starts to happen is that patients will get into what we call a pain protective stance. And typically they're coming forward. So just that forward motion, a little bit of that forward motion causes the tissue, the shoulders, the back, the hips, the knees to carry an extra 45 pounds of weight. So it's really important to help patients get upright. And this is where things like canes and walkers can be very helpful. Physiotherapists that I work with tries to get patients to see canes and walkers as pieces of exercise equipment so that they actually can help them become more mobile, but not just more mobile, but safe when they're up and moving. So that protective stance becomes really important to help them get upright. A very common scenario I see is somebody that sprains an ankle. Um, They are walking funny. They come in three or four days later because their knee is sore. So what I try and get them to understand is that their nervous system is trying to get them to use some crutches or find a way to get the weight off that foot. So to try and give it some support. So that pain protective stance sometimes can actually drive pain in other areas. So if that patient is getting into a protective stance, it's really important to get them upright. So at least with acute pain, once the pain settles down, usually the patient can get back upright. In chronic pain, the actual protective stance can actually stay there. It's just like walking. So when we walk, we don't think about walking. We just automatically do it. So these patients can get into these very hunched positions and actually not really realize that they're in these positions, but it starts to create pain and havoc in other areas of their body. So after I frame pain in a healthy context, we want to start exploring some tools that they can use to manage their pain. So I always think of these as habits and behaviors. So there are habits and behaviors that we give our patients, and then they're the ones that they're using themselves. So we really want to explore whether or not these habits and behaviors are helping them move forward, or are they kind of keeping them stuck? 
So what our patients bring to the table, so with all of these pain experiences, is they bring their life story. And that life story comes with some resiliency and it comes with some vulnerabilities. It also comes with habits and behaviors that they've used to find common connection in their life. So some of these habits and behaviors also build resiliency and some of them actually increase vulnerability. So a great example of resiliency is someone that practices mindful breathing or that someone that has a routine around going to the gym. Some of the habits and behaviors that might increase their vulnerability would be things like having a few drinks at night. The other thing that they come with is uh, they come with their brain memory. And this brain memory is something really important, is that their brain has the ability to hang on to every life-threatening, every significant experience that they've been through. So whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, it is a really important uh, part of how we get through life. So it's really based on survival and protection. It is the basis of post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, but it, it is also a very important aspect of the human condition that is really focused on survival and protection. So I love the quote that I use sometimes is that our life experiences shape the habits and behaviors we choose. Our habits and behaviors are not who we are, they're what we do to find common connection in our life. So habits and behaviors are really about strengths, about resiliency and about vulnerabilities. So different kinds of habits and behaviors that increase uh, vulnerability are things like disconnection. So if somebody is, is not close to family, does not have some good support networks, that increases their vulnerability. Um, if they're not moving, if there's somebody that tends to uh, sit a lot of days, tends to be very sedentary, doesn't have a lot of routine and structure, that increases their vulnerability. If they're individuals that are terrified of experiencing pain, so they have a lot of fear avoidance, that also increases their vulnerability. The other thing that increases their vulnerability is if they are uh, the type of individual that would think worst case scenario, meaning that if I'm having uh, pain in my belly, it means that I'm having uh, an aneurysm that's that's ruptured. So sometimes even the terminology that they're using can actually depict it, uh, a very high, um, uh, sort of a very worrisome kind of condition. So they're coming in with a headache. They believe that they have a head, uh, brain tumor. Those kinds of think that kind of thinking actually increases their vulnerability. Resiliency is that they are more mindful around the pain experience. They're less fearful of the pain experience. They have some experience. They're very open to the conversation. They have good support networks in their life. Um, they have good routine and structure. So when I'm looking at pain management, really what I'm trying to do is to change the messenger. So I'm really trying to change the neurotransmitters. I'm trying to bring them to that place of calm. So there are all kinds of different strategies that we use. So I want to take them out of that survival mode and put them more in that mindful mode, that calmer mode. And I can do it with medication. I can do it with uh, my talking points. I can do it with interventions or alternative therapies. So the important thing to remember, though, when we're managing pain is that we do need that multimodal therapeutic approach. And that really, because uh, what you're going to find is that rarely one thing will work. So using pharmacology can be helpful, but it can't be the only tool that you use. So it's important to try different things with them. So um, it's also important to try and identify the factors that are contributing to that experience for them. So I might see somebody who was involved in a very mild motor vehicle collision, but their pain intensity is quite severe. And when we examine them and work them up, we're not finding anything dangerous or bad, but the experience that they're having is very intense. So we can kind of explore that a little bit with them to understand what kind of previous experiences they've had and how their breath holding or how they're breathing might actually be contributing to that pain experience. 
experience and helping them to sort of find a calmer way to help them with their breathing. So that can make a big difference to how they experience pain. Where we get into some ethical and clinical dilemmas around uh, using pharmacology in particular, especially high-risk pharmacology, is that there's this balance between managing suffering but also trying to keep them safe. And we often have a very difficult time not wanting to aggressively manage suffering. Uh, However, sometimes we need to step back because we need to look at the bigger picture, which is around safety. So one of the terms I always use is that we always want to acknowledge suffering, but always lean into safety. It's quite interesting to me that in other aspects of healthcare, so when I think about some pharmacology that we use in other areas like coronary artery disease or stroke, where we're using high-risk pharmacology like thrombolytics, we are always looking at the safety component of using high-risk anti-clotting medications. So we have those discussions with patients. We look at the risk and the benefit, and uh, we come to some kind of uh, uh, an agreement about how we want to move forward, and we manage that risk with the patient. So if we decide to use that high-risk therapy, we manage that risk with the patient. Rarely do we do that with opiate analgesics or other high-risk medication. And so we need to be able to have that conversation with the patient, be able to do some risk management with the patient, um, decide whether or not that medication is appropriate for that patient, and then how we're going to help that patient manage the risk down the road. So how long do we give them that prescription, um, the type of prescription that we're going to use, um, and whether or not there are other strategies that are going to be more effective. So we'll talk about some of these high-risk strategies in another podcast because it is a pretty uh, intense conversation and um, it, it, there's do- different kinds of views around this but the important thing for patients is that we always want to acknowledge suffering but always lean into safety around the pharmacology. So the most powerful tool we have, we just mentioned, is breathing. So what breathing does, it takes us out of that survival mode so that that limbic system that is in survival mode Uh, and brings us to that prefrontal cortex. So the fastest way to get to that mindful piece is through our breathing. So it is one of the most powerful tools we have, but it's the least used tool. So sometimes even in a patient that is really uh, worked up about their pain experience, I'll get them to look at me and we'll try and get them to to relax their breathing. A great example would be someone, I just had a, a situation not too long ago where I was going to do some suturing in a patient, but the patient was asked absolutely terrified. So before I even started, they were hung on to the bed rails, just hanging on for dear life, and they were holding their breath. And I refused to do any kind of suturing or freezing in someone that is that scared. So what we did is we helped him to realize that that behavior was going to probably make things a little bit worse. And we brought him to that place of calm. I kept telling him that he got this, he was going to be able to get through this, and he did an amazing job. And I think he was quite proud of himself by the end of it. So it's important to always start in a calm place when we're doing procedures in patients and that we help to acknowledge that that experience for them is very difficult, but always bring them to the calm place before we start to do these procedures that are quite scary for them. So they need to feel safe. They need to feel that you've got their back, that you're going to be going to do what you can to keep them comfortable. So breathing is the most powerful tool. Then we can get into some interventions. So interventions could be something as simple as a cast or it can be a splint. Uh, It can sometimes be a nerve block. So these interventions can be very important. Then we look at alternative therapies. More and more uh, uh, literature is coming into the emergency room in particular around alternative therapies. And then we can look at medications. And the last 
thing to do is to look at risk stratification. So we're trying to reduce the harm of the pharmacology we're using and to keep the patient safe as well as the community safe. So other ways that we can challenge the messenger is to help challenge some of the faulty thinking that patients might have. So in terms of their worst case scenario, so it is important to explore those with them. Uh, what is their biggest fear? What, the, what are they most concerned about, about the pain that they're experiencing? So help them breathe, as we mentioned, is also very important. So talking points are how we engage with patients. Uh, this is also where you can take your power back as a prescriber, but also how you can help get that patient to that place of calm. It's important to be very open, very curious, asking questions, bring in compassion, be non-judgmentally, and also be very sensitive to their needs. The other thing that I think is really important, so we have a very strong First Nations community in our area, is that I often will ask some of our First Nations members is what do they use culturally to get to that place of calm? So tapping into some of those cultural um, uh, skills that they have um, it can make a big difference in terms of how to get them through some of the procedures that you might be doing. So one of the interesting uh, tactical breathing uh, skills, and there's lots of different uh, breathing skills out there, but one of the ones that I find very good is uh, when you think of the box breathing or the tactical breathing that's used in the military. So when they're in a combat zone, how they need to get to that mindful place, to that place of calm, is they imagine a box and then they breathe one, two, three, four, and they breathe out one, two, three, four. There's an excellent YouTube video out there as well called One Moment Meditation. If if you have a busy brain like I have a busy brain, sometimes getting to that place of calm is very difficult and it does need a lot of practice. So this YouTube video, One Moment Meditation, gets you to practice for a minute. The first time I tried it, I could go for 30 seconds, uh, but now I'm up to about five minutes. But it's really tough uh, to do this. But you start to feel differently. Your body starts to feel different. It feels much calmer, um, but it does require a lot of work. So interventions are seen as clinical actions that have the ability to modify the pain experience. So we talked about using a back brace, about using a splint, uh, sometimes nerve blocks. Alternative therapies are therapeutic practices that have the healing, healing effects of medicine, but are not based on a scientific model. So when you look at Tai Chi, when you look at acupuncture, all those are considered alternative therapies. Now, unfortunately, patients often don't have access to these therapies because they are very expensive, but they are really important when we start looking at how we change the messenger. So bringing patients to that place of calm, they keep the brain more focused. The brain also feels that they're moving. So even though they can be sitting in a chair doing Tai Chi, from the brain's perspective, they are moving. So that those uh, very slow kind of deliberate sorts of movements can be incredibly important uh, when people are experiencing pain. Music therapy can be incredibly important. Pet therapy, art therapy, all those things can help change our chemistry. So it can bring us to that place of calm. So they can have a huge impact on how we experience pain. So medications, how complicated can it be? Well, it can be very complicated. And there's lots of literature uh, out there looking at the different types of therapies. I think what's important when we consider medication is just to see it as a tool. It's also a tool that can uh, create a habit and behavior that may not be helping the patient in the long term. So it's important to have that discussion when we start looking at having some tools that we might use. The other thing that I just want to mention is that we shouldn't forget about things like ice and heat, uh, TENS machines, things like that. That sort of fits into the intervention alternative therapy areas as well. 
Uh, the topic, uh, pharmacological topic on opioids and cannabinoids, I'm going to do a little bit differently. But other types of pharmacology that we sometimes forget about are topicals. So topicals in some patients, especially things like shingles, can be very, very helpful, especially in the elderly when you're trying to minimize oral medication. So topicals are something to think about, and that could be a whole podcast in itself. It's quite an area of, of of therapy now that we're seeing more and more. So there's been a couple of interesting Cochrane reviews looking at acetaminophen and NSAIDs. So I do use Tylenol, uh, acetaminophen, excuse me, in, in our patients. Um, and I do find it very effective, especially in our elderly. So there's been a couple of Cochrane reviews and more in 2015 did this looking at pain reduction around six hours. And his, uh, basically, his uh, uh, description was in the Cochrane database in 2015, as was mentioned. So looked at non-prescription analgesic over-the-counter oral analgesics for acute pain. And it was an overview done in Cochrane Review. And he looked at several analgesics. And he found that the most effective was a combination of short-acting acetaminophen, 5 milligrams, and ibuprofen, 200 milligrams. Number needed to treat was around, for, for every six, for one patient would get benefit. So a success rate of both 67 if you doubled the dose, then the number needed to treat was actually one in five, with an improvement rate of 70%. Now, obviously, uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen uh, do have some side effects that we have to be concerned about, especially with ibuprofen and the kidney function as well as the gut and blood pressure medication. Uh, they did find, however, that the single-dose medication, as a single-dose medication, ibuprofen was definitely better than acetaminophen. But as was mentioned, ibuprofen does have some side effects that we have to be concerned concerned about. Low-dose ketamine has come, become more and more uh, something that we're considering in the emergency room. And there was an interesting meta-analysis by Gottlieb in 2018, looked at eight articles, a total of 609 patients, six randomized controlled trials, and two observational trials. And what they did is they looked at low-dose ketamine at 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilo IV and compared that to IV morphine at 0.05 to 0.1 milligram per kg. And they didn't really find any significant difference in the pain scores at 30 minutes between the two groups, but they did see an increase in adverse effects in the low-dose ketamine group, uh, 15.4% versus 4.4%, and those events included agitation, hallucinations that were generally self-limited. Ketamine is a drug that you're seeing more and more, especially in pediatric uh, procedural sedation, and it is a really uh, fascinating drug. Um, But as we kind of navigate through the opiate uh, uh, crisis that we're dealing with, more and more we're trying to look at these other therapies that help us minimize the opiate use. But there is some downsides to some of these. Um, So I am going to do a podcast looking specifically at uh, the use of opiate analgesics in the patient who also has an opiate use disorder. We're not going to do it in this podcast, but we will discuss that uh, in another podcast. So opiate analgesics are an incredibly important family of medication, but we all recognize that they do have inherent risks in vulnerable populations. Uh, I couldn't do my job without opiate analgesics, especially in my palliative care population. But we have to use them selectively, and we have to use them carefully. So the biggest risks that I'm always concerned about are opiate-induced pain, 
opiate uh, use disorder, opiate addiction, or opiate diversion. So we know that the fatalities are on the rise. Uh, in BC, unfortunately, has a disproportionate number of deaths compared to the rest of the country. Now, recently, I've seen some data was showing that the numbers are actually starting to go down, but they're very small. So three quarters of these deaths are fentanyl or fentanyl analog related. And the highest is in men between the ages of 30 and 39. 94% of these deaths are actually unintentional. And we've seen this increased shift in mortality toward first-time users of opioids and those living with chronic non-cancer pain, whereas previously most of the deaths were in long-time users of opioids who were using them non-medically. We're also seeing a trend in Canadian seniors. So 30% of all deaths in 2017 were actually patients over the age of 50 years. And 65 and older had the highest rate of hospitalizations due to toxicity. So this was from the National Initiative for the Care of the Elderly database. So the seniors are actually a population that we don't talk a lot about, but we need to be thinking about them more and more. So I think we're going to end it there and uh, hopefully get back to uh, talking more about opiate analgesics in the next podcast. I also have a few uh, interviews lined up that I'm really excited about, hopefully to share those with you coming up in the next few weeks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.